Rachel Daly is a striker. The end. The Koi Gig Pod on OTB Sports. She's got great passing range. She scores goals. She's great in the air. Brilliant in the air. Yeah. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. Monday Night Rugby on Off The Ball with Vodafone main sponsor of the Irish rugby team we all belong to the team of us now then forget about this World Cup business it's all about the rugby Keith Wood you're there hello uh, hi Joe how are you very well and Jerry Thornley of the Irish Times here in the studio hello to you hello good evening hi Keith hi Jerry haven't talked to you for a long time long time so we'll talk, um, Keith, obviously I'm sure you'd like to say a few words about uh, Dottie in uh, due course. We might start on the field if we can. It might be a sombre note to kick things off with and harder to talk about the rugby afterwards. So um, on the field, we had the URC uh, Munster beating Connacht 24 points to 17. We had Leinster 40, Glasgow 5 and we had Ulster beating Zebra 36 points to 15. And we had the final fumes of the November uh, series as well, which have thrown up their uh, fair share of mm. uh, consequence, <clears throat> I think. So just to start on Thoman Park, Munster 24, Connacht 17, four tries to two. Bonus point win uh, for Munster. Jerry, I know you were down, down in uh, Thoman Park. Uh, a lot of the big guns back. Uh, Peter Romani, Ty Byrne, Joey Carberry was at 10, Craig Casey was at nine. Bundiaki, big presence again for Connacht. Two teams who could have done with the win. Munster made off with the bonus point win. Yeah, I think the Munster selection said everything about the importance of the game for their season. Having lost five of the first seven matches, they just had no elbow room left if they wanted really nurture dreams of getting into the top eight minimum. You know what I mean? In qualifying for next season's Champions Cup, it was kind of must-win territory and that showed in selection. I'm a bit surprised Tyke Byrne played. He's had a very heavy load this season. He was one of, I think, only five Irish players to start all three November tests and there he was wheeled out again a week later where it was different for Bundyaki. That was only his third game of the season. Yeah, But... um. One thing that I'd have to say is, like, if you were watching television, as usual, television didn't convey how difficult a night it was there for playing rugby. It was very blustery and the ball was quite wet. That was clear. So there are very diff- difficult conditions to for skill levels to really shine. Um, and Munster won by going back to what they do best, you know, scored three of their four tries off line at Malls. They continually turned down three points, even to make it a two-score game. And uh, went after the tries through their forwards and got them. There was one nice try in the blind side. Craig Casey turned, making a two-on-two into a... 2v1.5 uh, for Calvin Nash and um, yeah and they really what the thing that really struck me was they really negated Connacht's attacking game which hasn't flowed this season mm. by targeting the carrier keeping them off the keeping them up off the ground for a few seconds they really slowed down uh, Connacht's ball to a trickle and Connacht's launch plays and attacking game haven't really taken off this season and it always felt to me like Munster were going to win although Andy Friend was much more um, clearly much more aggrieved about some of the key refereeing decisions decision by the officials as I'm sure no doubt were the, more the Connacht supporters because two of the reverse penalties led to two of Munster's tries and certainly the first reverse penalty was a very debatable call. Right. Keith, it's funny for, for much of the start of the season we were watching Munster and, and looking for the new fingerprints of the new head coach and the new attack coach whereas I think at this stage given the start there was just a degree of back to basics they have to win the game. I also thought it was part of the the conditions. So you play whatever you have to to, yeah. to see in front of you. Look, I don't think we're looking for uh, an idea of Munster to um, to discard useful and successful ways of scoring. I don't think that was ever the call. I think the idea is that you have to show your hand and you have to do it at enough a pace and accuracy to get the score with it. And you do want to see Munster play far more with ball in hand. But um, I think needs must in some points. 
but also um I, look i do think we've seen it's 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 unusual because we the you know the autumn matches come in and they kind of throw everything into a, a, some level of confusion um but we did see with no real pressure you know with playing um south africa a um that if they lost that game it didn't impact on points on the league or anything like that that without that pressure they were able to play some incredible um rugby that we haven't seen and take you know take chances like um, i just don't think monster have taken chances for a while so i th- i like to see that they can go over and back to different things um i still don't want the, them to get into the idea that kicking the ball away is a good idea um but i'd be content with the tries i was content with with Casey having a little bit of a snipe for that, bit of a poor defence from Connacht, but to make that into a sort of two-on-one. Um, but I was just happy with the with the performance that ended in a win. I mean, I think Munster would like it to be an awful lot better. Um, I think Connacht would like their whole play to have got better. I think they've they've stalled somewhat this this year. It often happens, I think, when when a coach announces that they're going to go, whether that makes a bit of a difference or not. But it's it's stalled a little bit. They're not having the spark that they've had in the past. Um and uh, and again, like in I tell you, every game that we talk about this weekend, we could end up talking about people complaining about the referees afterwards. So look, I think Munster are just happy that they've got the the win. Um they want to concentrate on getting another win on Friday. Um, try and get their season back on order. I think if we do a very snap shot on the start of the season, I think they would have expected to win their first two or three games and didn't. And they've been fighting that corner ever since. It's an additional pressure for them if they needed any more, you know. Jerry, what's your read on Connacht? Because certainly Andy Friend created a real sense of mission and progress and it can't help when the leader is departing and it's public and everybody knows. Yeah, there, there is a history of this, you know what I mean? You think of Pat Lamb's last season, you think elsewhere, other last seasons, even last season with Munster maybe tailed off a bit under Johan van Graham and Stephen Larkin. Um, you sense that won't happen with Stuart Lancaster leaving Leinster, though. Um, um, yeah, it's been, I think, stall is a good word that Keith uses. They're, like I said earlier, their their attack has been nothing like as fluent this season. Um, they Their launch plays haven't been as electric or as effective. <laughs> Which was their hallmark. Which was their hallmark, really, of last... And they were, made them so good to watch as well. I know they've had a really difficult start to the season and they, you know, they've know they been through their trip to South Africa whereas Munster are going to finish in that one. So Munster, Munster fans have to bear that in mind. That's why they have to really take as many points as they possibly can between now and then because you, be you wouldn't want to be going over to South Africa to chase two wins to get a place in the top eight or maybe even one. But going back to Connacht, um, I think they lack a really big ball carrier. You know, I think they really lack physicality. I think point of difference going forward. Every team has to have one or two of these animals. Abram Papali was a uh, last season, what well, the last couple of seasons was a point of reference for them, but he just kept getting red cards, and so he was let go. Um, Sammy Arnold too, but generated a fair bit of go forward. Now Bundyaki did generate a really good half break, freed his hands for Tom Farrell, and that was yeah. one of two. But it was only one of two clean line breaks in the match for Connacht. Um, so they got their two tries. One was um, an intercept close to the Munster line after admittedly a very clever kick in following that break by Caelan Blade into space. For once, one of the few clever kicks I thought all night. I agree with Keith. I thought there was an awful lot of aimless kicking, just kicking for the sake of it, just getting down the other end of the pitch until finally Joey Carby broke from the script and did that thrilling counter-attack, one of Munster's two line breaks. So, you know, the the, the entertaining pickings were slim. Yeah. And you just expect more from Connors' attacking game because if they're going to be 
if they're going to seriously challenge for top eight, their attack has to be different because they're not going to bully teams. They just have to be very smart and very slick. And I do think that they didn't manage the game particularly well at times. There was a few key moments like Jack Cardi missing a penalty to touch early in the second half. So, you know, they've, they've got to make all those chances to enter the opposition 22 tell and they didn't. But um, yeah, I think stall is a good word that Keith uses. They have stalled a bit, I think, in attack this season. They have a huge game now against Benetton on Saturday. Like if... It's very and Munster away to Edinburgh. It's very evident that the two Italian sides, the two Scottish sides, are picking stronger selections for home matches than they are for away games. They're going after their home games, and um, now, but Bennett have had their fourth home win out of four at the weekend, so they will probably actually think going to Connacht is a chance to really make progress. And they're t- they're topping the Italian Scottish table, and they're going after a place in the Champions Cup. It's much more in their sights than it is for Connacht. So it's a massive game for Connacht next Saturday in sports ground. May not look like it, might not be the most appealing uh, standout fixture of the season, but that doesn't make it any less important. Keith, just on the kicking point, Munster's kicking, I mean at times Craig Casey in particular kicked very well, very assured, brilliant exits and occasional box kicks. What are the kicks when you see um, Munster go down that route that frustrates you? In, in what kind of scenarios? Uh, the scenario for me is when it kind of becomes one of the first options. That's one of them. Uh, the other one is when they slow it down to kick it. Right. Um, uh, if we start talking about the different things that are kind of driving me mad and the laws of the game, every time I see a caterpillar, I just want it cancelled. You know, I just, <laughs> there's things like that just drive me mad. Um, but uh, no, it's it's some of the kicking became a little bit aimless. But uh, in, in terms of it's trying to move it away from how they've played for the last number of years. That's the the piece that I would be going to. And I think that that's a really hard thing to do. I think you get used to a tempo and it's trying to move out off that tempo. And I think that becomes quite difficult when, when it's blustery or when it's wet, that makes it harder because the things that you've been doing for a long time are the things that come back, that this is what you need to do. So um, look, I, I'm looking at Munster. I'm not particularly frustrated with them. Um, I uh, I think it is a big work in 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 uh, um, in progress. I think it'll take quite a while to get there. Um, so every time I see a win, I'm pretty happy with it, um, provided that there is that uh, almost curiosity to do something else with the ball than kick it, which which they did. And um, look, I thought their intent. Was- was very different. I thought the manner in which they played was um, uh, appropriate for the conditions, but I also thought that they got the the bonus point and I thought that was really impressive coming where they are with their confidence earlier in the season and having not really been together for a while. So um, it was a great reaction from from a group of guys that had been playing some very tough rugby for the last month. Fair enough. And one last point, Jerry. Joey Carberry's watched Jack Crowley come to the fore and even Ross Byrne have a moment in a green jersey as well and he played the game at one point in the commentary Bernard Jackman was uh, complimentary of Carberry taking the ball to the line and playing nice and flat what did you make of his performance in the flesh? Yeah I thought he did did some of those things very well and, and took a big hit for his troubles as a result by letting the ball go so late and put people away into gaps and I think he's a classy player. That that break from the back, that counter-attack when he drifts in field. It wasn't a great kick chase from Connacht, but he's you can see he's, he's scanning who's there in front and he picks out Josh Murphy and goes around him and he's through. And then the chip. Um, I do think he could have made a bigger effort to go around John Porch, but hey, it worked. He got the penalty and he got the yellow card and they, they scored within that next 10 minutes as well. I thought he played pretty well. And then you've got Jack Crowley. It's very interesting. When it comes to the World Cup, 
there probably will only be two specialist out halves, you know, out and out tens, Johnny Sexton and what other. If there's going to be a third one, it will be a 10 who can play 15 or elsewhere. It'll be a Kieran Frawley or Jack Crowley. I suppose you can say Joey Carby falls under that category as well, but Crowley can actually do a very good job at fullback as well. He's such a talented footballer. And it probably was a little bit of relief to Carby that he didn't have to vacate his, the premises of 10 and that Jack Crowley was pressed into coming on for Mike Haley at fullback. So, yeah, Jerry, I thought, there has to be there has to be three 10s. Well, but yeah, well, one of them that, that will also be able to play 15 will be yeah. imperative. And, or 12 in the case of Kieran Frawley. I think, you know, the versatility is huge. In a third. I think I'm right in saying that, you know, we only brought two specialists out of halves the last World Cup. It's off in the way, you know what I mean? You bring maybe five halfbacks, but not six. Well, we'll watch that space. So that was Munster. Leinster uh, play Ulster on Friday night coming, by the way. You mentioned uh, Connacht mm. have Bennett on Galway and Munster in Edinburgh. So Leinster will play Ulster on Saturday coming. They'll have a tougher game, I suspect, than Glasgow managed to give them. Uh, Ross Byrne, Luke McGrath were at half-back. It was uh, very much a second-string uh, Leinster team in the main, in so much as they have second-string uh, sides. Max Deegan had a very good game. Yes, he did. Uh, Rob Russell scored a hat-trick on the wing, 23 years of age. I saw highlights here, but just doing a bit of reading about the game, the sense was that there was a bit of uh, rust, nonetheless, about the Leinster performance post-November and defence wasn't perfect and there were errors and there were uh, penalties. But uh, it is uh, the truth of uh, so many uh, teams in the URC that they're not good enough to capitalise when they're against Leinster. Yes. Um, 60% possession, 61% territory, seven clean breaks to three. 26 defenders beaten compared to 12, 23 offloads compared to 6, um, only 97 tackles made compared to 170 and penalty count 15-13 in their favour. Yeah. This is Glasgow I'm talking about. <laughs> Those are all Glasgow stats. Right. That shows you how good Leinster were to score was at 6 tries to 1. They were just so clinical okay. in the opposition 22. Sorry, I, th- I took, thought you were telling me that it was a complete you, domination from If you Leinster. took away the scoreline and wow. just looked at the match stats, yeah. you'd think, well, those match stats must be all in Leinster's favours. Which just shows you how, A, how they brilliantly scrambled in their own 22 and completely frustrated Glasgow, but also how clinical they were in taking their chances. You talk, We talked about the great Casey try. Luke McGrath was having a very, very good season for Leinster. Set up a similar... 2v2 made into 2v1.5 with the same kind of footwork and timing of his pass for one of Russell's three tries. The other was a brilliant offload from Natai to Russell and then there was um, really impressive young Tyros in the back line. Dave Carney finished his try really well. I really like Jamie Osborne as a player. He's big and physical which is a huge help in the modern game mm. and he's just an all-round talent. He can play multiple positions. Look, he was at 15. He was 15. Was he? Only so. a second ever start at 15. Okay. I think he's right-footed. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's left-footed. That was a lovely left-footed chip he put through for the last try as well. Yeah. So got, and then they could bring off uh, Jason Jenkins of the bench you know what I mean so the, Leinster's second string team we always known this it's been the case for like six years it's certainly better than anybody else's second string team and very often it's better than their first string team as well and what can you tell us about Rob Russell who scored the hat-trick well I think um, that's six tries in six games so hats off to the lad but he would have to say a big thank you to the three try assists I yeah. think it was Chris Cosgrave would let, let, set up the hat-trick one really as well, well. Ooh, yeah. what a piece of footwork a pirouette footwork time in the past so got all this talent coming yeah, through. Yeah, I keep track of them all. So yes. Cosgrave, he looked yes. very good as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I thought Liam Turner went really well in midfield as well. Okay. Um, so, you know, they've got a little bit of a crisis of 12 now with Robbie Henshaw being out until the new year and Charlie Natai having injured, got injured last weekend as well and also being a doubt and Kieran Frawley also being sidelined. But there are so many versatile players in Leinster's ranks that even if you, they, you'll always find they'll put out a pretty good backline. It was, it was a far from perfect performance. It felt nothing like a 40 points to five win, I think, as Leo Cullen said afterwards. But it, w- it gets them going again. It maintains yeah. them at the top of the table. 
and next up Ulster who if it wasn't for Leinster going so well we'd actually be saying an awful lot more about Ulster they're not unlike Leinster and they've got a very potent mall but probably even every bit as electric in the back line with the conveyor belt of young indigenous talented backs like Stuart Moore all these footballers coming through and Luke Marshall reborn at 13 and they're taking their tries really well mm. it's a proper top of the table clash this on Saturday night it's a really good game to look forward to and it's very, very relevant in terms of the United Rugby Championship and even looking further down the line and potentially getting a home semi-final and all that palaver. But also it's an ideal stepping stone into Europe. The, Europe the following weekend. Yeah, OK. Well, we'll look forward to that. That's Saturday, 7.35. To turn our attention then to the international games of the weekend, England 13, South Africa 27. Uh, Booze once again at full-time at uh, Twickenham. Eddie Jones, I watched his press conference afterwards. Still incredibly assured... Like, not afraid to bark by, back at the journalists and, you know, I don't understand your question and putting them on the back foot and, you know, not, not rattled at all. His general sense of the game was we lost the scrum, we lost in the air, can't fold the effort. And he said, you know, we're building a really good base for the World Cup. Young players are getting game time. Senior players are coming back into form. We're not far away. That was the general tone of his press conference as Owen Farrell sat beside him with his head down at all times. So that's one win in November against Japan and it's their worst year since 08 six losses five wins uh, one draw um, Clive Woodward's not happy Keith he said no. Jones need to feel, needs to feel some serious heat from his employers I would say to him forget about the World Cup if you lose your next game against Scotland in the Six Nations you're out of the job and if Jones has to get paid off and we need to raise the money then so be it I mean I don't know as a strategy is as sacking a coach uh, after the first Six Nations game uh, the best idea but uh, Woodward is fed up with these anonymous review panels in place since 2019 here we go again he said he wants a full transparent review he also added for reasons which have never been explained to me I've never been invited to participate in any of these reviews at the risk of sounding arrogant <laughs> uh, high risk I dare say I believe I'm the most qualified oh, Englishman <laughs> to conduct an investigation although hasten to add I'm not angling for a job um, but nonetheless Woodward's not alone here. I saw a whole host of uh, former England players coming out uh, very genuinely worried about the situation, not swallowing the line that uh, Jones is trying to feed everyone. Yeah, I mean, Woodward is, he's a very interesting guy, actually. Um, um, I like him. He's good fun. He is definitely confident in his own capabilities. There's nothing wrong in that either. He's a head coach. You kind of almost need to separate the man from the position. Uh, Eddie Jones brings that to a whole new level. Um, he one of his comments was he doesn't care what anybody thinks uh, afterwards. Well, that's a quite interesting element because there's people paying an awful lot of money to go in through the gates for it. Um, he keeps saying judge him on the World Cup. Um, I think very few businesses would like it just to be on uh, one competition every four years when there is a funding crisis in the game and. Um, almost the problem for England at the moment is that they get 82,000 people who pay a huge amount of money to go to it. So it's going to generate money anyway. Um, if that was in Australia, which is the best example, they would be walking away in droves for that idea, you know, so they react very badly to loss in Australia. But um, it seems like a gravy train that keeps on giving. So um, when he says that he sees huge improvement, um I always think that uh, when you, like I've spoken to coaches, they've said, "Look, you can come and watch us at training and see what we're we're going to we're trying to do." I don't ever need to see them in training. You can see them on the Saturday, and um, I thought England were 
they were absolutely blown out of the game. And bearing in mind, this is a South African team with seven or eight players either out through injury um, or the uh, the um, being outside the international yeah. window. So they didn't have the same team as they had the previous week. They they bullied England all over the field physically, but they also there was a change in South Africa. So I think uh, Larue has been given the opportunity to have a cut from wherever. And uh, Ritzner um, has scored burning Marcus Smith on the outside. Unfortunately for Smith, he made the one wrong step and he couldn't get back to it. But they played a fantastic style. And it was a really big um, mixture of forward power, domination, um, huge graft and huge skill. And they showed an awful lot more um adventure than 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 they have done for a while and it has been kind of building a little um but i i thought england got suckered back in and this is the criticism i know we often get criticized for slagging off south africa we shouldn't slag off south africa they play their way and their way works for them why would they change i i criticize the teams that think that they have to kick away the ball all the time um, that the way to play against South Africa is South Africans' way, and they're not good enough or big enough for it. And England tried to do that, and they kept talking about the fact they were going to stand up to the scrum and they'd be fine. They got blown away in the scrum. And uh, even with seven players, and there was a red card to the toy, which was absolutely correct, um, but even with seven players, they were pushing England back in the scrum. It was the most devastating um uh, performance, the best that I think South Africa have played since the World Cup final and um, against the same opposition, which kind of made it entertaining. But to hear the crowd booing at the end, oh, that's not a good place for it. And for a head coach to say he doesn't care what people think when the people who are coming in as fans are booing him doesn't seem to be correct. No, and they booed last week when Smith kicked the ball out of play. There's a, just a general unhappiness at Twickenham, Keith mentioned the Kurt Lee try. I think um, <coughs> Willie LaRue was part of that as well. And uh, But the kick chase was appalling, really. It was know. poor. Um, Damien Wilmser did very well in, in origination. Yeah. And there's a player we speculated might never wear the number 10 jersey again. Far from it. He's might actually the, gone very well since best, that torrid uh, day. Place kicker. He can he kicks a mean drop goal. Two lovely drop goals. Yeah. Um, he just looks much more assured. He's just... He's really come come on very well since that torrid afternoon in Dublin. Yeah. And that's been another one of the bonuses for South Africa. But as for him, yeah, that was a, a poor kick chase. And kicking is such an essential part of their game. I don't see them doing much else, except when the shackles are off, as in the last 10 minutes against the All Blacks, and they've nothing to lose. And to a degree, after the Dutois sending off, when they again, they had nothing to lose, 27-13 down the scoreboard. Um, they're just Eddie Jones is talking a far better game than England have been playing for the last good year at least very convincing yeah it's tarsome judge me on the World Cup mantra because yeah. it just you know you can't, what else can you say yeah it, it, but but it's also it's not it doesn't portray the Six Nations in a good light I just don't like the way that he's devaluing the Six Nations and sure. everything else that goes on in between World Cups as Keith says there's a lot more to the game in that um, in between World Cups I, I, they need a tight head they've got a problem there um, Maro Toje is not the player he has been lately no uh, Manu, Manu Tulagi certainly isn't the player he used to no. be. What's your sense of the pressure he's under for his job? Eddie Jones? Yeah. I think he's a very confident man. He's probably got a very good, nice kind of package were he to be removed from his position. I think he's fairly confident he's going to stay there. Reading between the lines of most of the English courts today, they're saying there isn't a huge appetite in Twickenham to remove 
the head coach 10 months out. I agree totally with you about what the Clive Woodward idea that they replace him after one game into the Six Nations. That, who, that'd be a farce. Yeah, who else is out there as well at the moment? Well, have you, you considered me? Clive Woodward? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, Warren Gatland, I'd say, is a wanted man at the moment. Scott Robertson, maybe? Maybe, yeah. Um, who take it, though, you know? Scott Robertson, maybe? Maybe, maybe. But, um, yeah, they're in a... They're, I hope he stays, because they don't, they don't look like a team to me that are set to win a World Cup. They, I'm not really sure what kind of brand of rugby they're trying to play. Mm. I just don't know. What is their best team? What what do England stand for as a team at the moment? He's talked about the power game most recently. Yes. But yeah. on the evidence of Saturday, yeah. I wouldn't hang your hat on that. No. Like I said, the best 10 minutes of, their, of the of the last year or more under Eddie Jones was undoubtedly that last 10 minutes against the All Blacks in part helped by the All Blacks imploding and Bowden Barrett getting himself yellow carded. But um, yeah, I hope he stays because they're not. They don't seem to be going very anywhere rapidly. But there's no doubt they do have the playing personnel and whatever else to be. Like ten months, a lot could happen between now and then. They could be contenders for sure. They're England yeah. after all. Because I mean, as a final word on England, Keith Jones is making the point. You know, a, a third of the team on Saturday had less than twenty caps. So he said the young players are getting incredible experience. They learn so much from defeats like these. The more experienced players are finding their form again and and, and getting game time again. And come next year. Wait and you see everybody. And uh, again, very convincing, but there's very little evidence to back that up. Yeah, he's been selling that for a while now. And that's, um, I think people are getting put off from so from the English fans' perspective. Um, now, they do have an incredibly easier route. Um, they have an easier pool. They have mm, an easier true. path. Um, if they can get momentum, they can do that. Um but it pretty much depends on how they're playing. I mean, I think other teams are playing better. So are you able to get another 10 caps into these players over the next year? Are you able to bring all the other players back and get them on the right place where they're full of their confidence and everything is working well for them? Well, other teams are progressing as well. So I think you'd see better improvements than other people and those improvements are coming with a win as well. Um, um that was fairly humiliating on uh, on on Saturday. So I don't know that uh, I can tell you that. Yes, you learn from losing, but you don't learn from getting pushed into the ground all the time and and penalised off the park. So um, look, I think it's I think it's a tough one for them. Um, there is the possibility of, of changing coach, and um, South Africa did that to great effect with Razi Erasmus before the last one. About twenty months out, they changed. Um, whether England would do that or not, um, he has 10 months left in his contract or 12 months left in his contract. That's what it would cost, um, presumably, to buy him off. And um, that may be a decision that they'd have to do. But I mean, the RFU got eviscerated last week in the in the Commons uh, subcommittee uh, for their handling of the finances in their game yeah. and through Wasps and Worcester disappearing. So they've had a pretty tough week. They have a sleep at the wheel, the general tone of that last week. Just, it's been a very good window for South Africa. Like they very nearly beat Ireland. They very nearly beat France. They thrashed the Italian side. They just beat Australia. Yeah. And then they go to Twickenham and thoroughly beat England. Cheston Colby doesn't look like the player four years ago. But Kurt Lee Aranze looks like the Jason Colby of four years ago, even down to mimicking the step around Marcus Smith, yeah. which Colby did against Owen Farrell in the World Cup final. They had to find out if they have another at half in addition to Andre Pollard, and now they have one in Willemson, maybe. And, you know, Faf de Klerk was back to his best at the weekend, for sure. You add Casper Weiss and all the European-based players and Andre Pollard and Lucan Yuan back to the, mm. that squad. It's the most settled side in the world. It's the core of the team that won the World Cup four years ago. They've had a good November. 
Great. <laughs> Thrilled. Uh, Wales 24, Australia 39. So Wales now are 34. just... 34. Did you say 34, 39? 34, 99, 39, excuse me. Wales are finding a way to lose uh, every game at the moment. I mean, this was extraordinary. 26 unanswered points in the final 22 minutes to lose the game. So Wayne Pivak's overall record, 34 tests, just 13 wins. And this year in 12 tests, there have been nine defeats. Yeah, three wins, nine defeats. So the reporting is several unscheduled meetings involving senior Welsh Union officials post the Georgia defeat. And the man they have identified to further paper over the cracks is the man who's papered over the cracks (laughs) for the previous 12 years in Warren Gatland, which is just extraordinary. So unlike Jones... Eddie Jones, this does seem like it's happening. Wayne Pivak said, I certainly want to stay. Uh, you saw when we got things right, we are a dangerous team. It doesn't look like he's going to be allowed to stay. Perhaps the most pertinent question is, will Gatland mm. take up the offer? Mm. Does he have everything to lose and not much to gain or vice versa? Um, I wouldn't say he's got everything to lose. You know, he'll always have a, he's, he's going to leave a great legacy in Welsh rugby no matter what because you and I agree that it does seem to have been papering over the cracks given what the Welsh regions have been doing for the last 12, 13 seasons and the WRU. It would always seem that what Wales achieved was in despite the regions rather than because of them. Just give it to you in his 12 years, four Six Nations which included three Grand Slams and two World Cup semi-finals yeah. thrown in. World number one as well for a time. Yeah, yeah. Phenomenal achievement yeah. with players drawn from the Dragons, Ospreys, Cardiff and Scarlets given that was a one Pro 12 title, one Magnus League title, ironically under Pivac. And I do think Pivac has tried to introduce that touchline to touchline offloading game with Wales but they just don't seem to be playing it with any great conviction. Yeah, They're still very reliant on, on, on the old guard. A lot of players in their 30s that st- still, there is talent coming through but again it just doesn't you just don't know what the West, best Welsh side is. The results have been poor. Um, I, I wonder if you're Gatland and you're looking at the age profile of that squad and yeah. the lack of talent coming through. Yeah. Maybe that's the way he will look at it. There is talent coming through. You know, there is. There is, like you saw Jack Morgan, that guy got the two tries the weekend. There is talent coming through. Yeah. Um, Reece Samet, you know, he wasn't there. There's, there. And, you know, they're actually capable of turning around. Wales are like this. They go up and down and there's no rhyme or reason to it. You know, they were... There were Six Nations champions in 2021. Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Yeah. And second from bottom last year, which can happen in the Six Nations, but seems to happen to Wales more often than anybody else. But, you know, if Gatlin came back in mm. and uh, in time for the first round of Six Nations, Wales v Ireland in, in Cardiff. A lot more worried. Wouldn't it? Yeah. And a lot of Irish people would be a lot more worried. There is that. There, there is, is that. that. He is currently a director of rugby with the Chiefs in New Zealand, but mm. um, he has spent much of the last month very uh, high profile on, on Amazon, Amazon Prime. Prime pitch side for all, for all these games. So, I mean, he's, he's he made the trip up. Uh, so, Keith, it does look like Pivac's in serious trouble here. What's your read on the Gatland uh, dilemma? Oh, I think I think Gatland would take it. I think um, I think he could uh, carve out a, a very good deal for himself. I think the I think his his manner of coaching, especially in Wales, and uh, knowing the players wouldn't be a huge upheaval. I think it would be very comforting for the players. Um, I think he would turn the team around fairly significantly. Um, Jerry's right. I think they, they've, um, Pivek has tried to rely on the old guard, but the old guard are 35, 36. That's a hard old guard to be relying on, um, especially if you're looking at for all the grunt on the field and they can do bits of it, but not all of it and not consistently enough. There has been a bit of a change. 
what I when I looked in that game at the weekend, I looked at an international team that is playing an extra match outside the window. Um, and there's a reason for having those windows in there in the first place is to kind of protect the players a little. They were shattered. So they looked wrecked. Their decision-making in the last 15, 20 minutes was one of pure fatigue and simple things that they could do in their sleep. They were asleep and couldn't do them, you know, and um, they just, they fell apart at the end and, uh, and you could watch it and, Australia were always winning, but 10 minutes ago, Australia were going to win because Wales at that stage were absolutely out on their feet. So um, so I think you suffer a little bit by trying to squeeze an extra game in. Yes. And, and that's that's uh, a Welsh union short on cash, presumably. No, of course it is. And there's reasons, be it rationale behind it, but you have to deal with the consequences of those too. So mm. um, look, I thought Wales played really, really well and then fell apart. So, um, so so well enough if you were in the Welsh Rugby Union uh, uh, corridors of power that you might say, well, there was enough there that we saw that we, Wayne Pivak is, uh, you know, des- deserves next year based on the good parts or not. No, I think it makes it really, really hard if, and I don't know whether the confidence has been lost or not, but they're looking for a solution at the moment and Wales' performance in the autumn uh, didn't offer enough of that, I would say. Um so I think it'll be, uh, and Wales tend to react very quickly over any other uh, mm. international team. They're quite happy to make a change if if things they don't see that they're working particularly well. So um, I actually think Gatland could do the job, could do the job incredibly well because they all know him. Yeah. And such as his stature in Wales, you know what I mean? Public uh, right. yeah. So, yeah, the public, every, it'd, be, it'd just be generate a feel-good factor. It's just unfortunate for Pivak that the, the one guy looking over his shoulder that might be available at the moment is Warren Gatland. The, the other thing as well is Pivak um, cancelled his trip to France as part of the Welsh World Cup reconnaissance mission. Did he? Yeah. Right. Which would seem perhaps to be significant, I don't know. Word on, a word on Australia. I mean, they took on two ma- extra matches outside the window. They took on a five-match tour. They're very short on cash. They're very short. This was their 14th test of the year, more than any other team. And they were missing 14 players. Mm. So for them to come back with 26 unanswered points in the last 22 minutes of the most gruelling test schedule of any Tier 1 nation this year tells me a couple of things. Number one, that as Nick White said after the Irish defeat, they are 100% behind Dave Rennie and they mean this. That was, did a lot of Australian media that week, just the way it fell, there was, they were just providing a lot of Australian media and it was near my home. So I just, and there, there was a constant vibe coming out that they were 100% behind Dave Rennie and I don't think they could have done that in the end of the 14th test had that not been the case. Yes. For me, there's a lot of time. You add in some of those 14 players. You say Will Skelton starting. We think of that battering ram that he did against Ireland. Like Matt Williams is going, Daddy joined the mini rugby game. Um, most of all, I think, if you add in a fit Quade Cooper or some out half. I just don't I don't think Bernard Foley's had a good no. November at all. Um, I don't know whether his sojourn in Japan has affected his game and not been bringing him on the way it should be. But if they can, you add in a, a good few of those players who are missing from this tour and that final match and particularly in number 10, be it Quade Cooper or someone else. It t- tells us everything about the state of the rugby um, landscape at the moment that I would not rule out Australia winning the World Cup in a year's time. It's not beyond the man's possibility. Okay. Um, last but not least, and I mean that very sincerely, I didn't want to put you, Keith, in the position of talking about Dolly Weir and then having to talk about rugby afterwards. So we'll finish on Dolly Weir's passing at the age of just 52. 
uh, 61 Scottish caps. The Lions tour, of course, in 97, diagnosed with motor neuron disease in 2016 and was a very uh, visible figure over the last six years. And he set up his foundation and we did see him at Murrayfield just a couple of weeks ago before the New Zealand game. And, you know, I think it probably struck a lot of people. He looked very thin at that stage. And I know you'd been to see him recently. Yeah, I've had, um, we've had, we've lost a couple um, this weekend. So one of my great friends in Killaloo, uh, Joss Lowry, um, passed away with his funeral. I'm, I'm just coming from the funeral now. And it was funny when we were, we were talking about, um, about Daddy and I ended up kind of looking at similarities between Daddy and Joss. And there was none from a rugby context. And one is that Daddy was a giant of a man. He was a great big tree and Joss wasn't. He was a very short guy. He played average rugby. Um, Daddy played unbelievable rugby. And uh, the reason I was looking at the, at the similarities was that um, uh, it was off the rugby field. And everybody can talk about the rugby of Daddy because he was an incredible teammate. Um, uh, we had a reunion during the summer from from the 97 Lions and, uh, you know, he was obviously gravely ill and he was there and he was magnificent and um, it was fantastic to see him. And uh, we saw him again. Uh, I went over to Scotland about six weeks ago. Um, we went on a whiskey distillery tour and it was just, it was, it was sad and fantastic. Um, and he was a, like a beautiful man, wonderful man. Um, but I keep going back to the similarities between himself and Joss and the idea that they had, they had a society agenda. They didn't ever have a personal one. So, um, when Daddy got um, motor neuron uh, disease, the diagnosis, um, he never felt sorry for himself. He or he never showed that he did. Um, he had a fantastic wife and his boys, his three boys, but he wanted to try and make a change and it was never going to benefit him. And he'd lie a bit at the start and say, this is a chance for me to find a cure. But he knew that that wasn't the reality. And he made, he raised countless millions. I think it was 10 or 11 million actually was the number that he raised in trying to bring motor neuron disease to, um, to the government, to the general populace, to the idea that this was something that required far more funding that was there for it. Um, and Joss had the exact same idea. So he had a total society uh, agenda, community agenda, not anywhere near as public. Um, but I can tell you that in the town that I live in, in Killaloo, there isn't one good thing in this town that doesn't have Joss Lowry's uh, stamp on it from, from the park to the creche for the kids to the parish council to all the schools to the hurling club, rugby club and tennis club. Pretty much everything that was done, he was involved in it. And so I found it really sad over the last couple of days. I was very emotional on, on Saturday evening. Uh, when when uh, when Daddy passed away, because um, it was kind of another one, another add to Joss having passed away uh, early Friday morning. Mm. So I was kind of looking at it, but I ended up getting my head around the idea that the two guys had been very sick and had been very sick for a while. And they were two big men not to have a celebration in terms of it rather than the sadness. And of course, the sadness and for the family, it's incredibly hard. But celebrations of two lives lived to the absolute full 
Um, so it's very sad. I mean, I, lo- I look, I love touring with Doddy. I loved his company. Uh, I love the crack, the sense of humor, both he and Joss had that in common too. So, um, yeah, it's been a pretty, pretty tough sort of weekend, I have to say. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, Joss, obviously, Jerry, not, we're not familiar with, but Doddy Weir, I think everybody, um, over the last couple of years from afar fell a little bit in love with, because how couldn't you? Mm. Mm. I mean, uh, not only an outstanding rugby player, and as Keith said, an outstanding man and stand- human being, but an outstanding character. The way that he bore his cruel illness so well mm. just made him clearly an extraordinary, very different kind of person. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what much more else I can say. He, he not only raised millions, but he also raised awareness. Mm. Like, possibly nobody's ever had to bear, bear that cruel illness ever before him. So yeah, um, yeah, he was, uh, his life story, his campaign, everything about him was just very moving, an extraordinary human being. Yeah, and because it's not to say uh, the alternative Keith is in any way lesser, no. but but, but not, no. not everybody would have made themselves as visible as Don. No, Keith. and it's not, to, it's not ever to take it in a negative in that way. I mean, the, the difference, uh, like, there's, I think there's lots of people wouldn't be able to do it, wouldn't no. have the skills to do it. Um, he was effervescent. Um, I mean, he dressed in the most fantastically ludicrous tartan. And he's six foot eight. I mean, he looked like a clown half the time. He brightened every single room he'd walk into. Mm. I mean, but his wit was fantastic, uh, disparaging, um, bright. Um, uh, he was like one. He was wonderful, and like you can. He, he was he 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 actually permanently thought of other people. So what would make people feel at ease? So for him, it sat very comfortably with him that this is something that he could go and do and talk about. Um, he had a frame that he wanted to hang motor neuron on, and uh, and he wanted to be able to to talk about it because because he was such a big man, and because it diminished him, but it never diminished his spirit mm. and. Uh, Look, um, his, his voice. The last time I saw him, his voice was just beginning to go. Um, it was it was very tough, um, and I, he was finding it tough. So, look for his last public thing to be bringing a ball out onto the field with his family is pretty amazing. And I think rugby's reaction to him um, has been fully appropriate because he was he was a much loved son of the game. Well, listen, that's a great tribute. Thank you so much, Keith. Appreciate it. Cheers, gents. Jerry Thornley of the Irish Times. Jerry, thanks very much. Cheers, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Our rugby coverage here and off the ball with thanks to Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us. Monday Night Rugby on Off the Ball with Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us.